0: The first stage of the day is the first stage of the year, and the of Alright out there, you're welcome to episode 24 of Folklore Fragments, which is not being broadcast from its usual haunt in the archives of the National Folklore Collection at Ireland's University College Dublin, but is instead beaming to you direct from a fortified bunker somewhere beneath the Hill of Tara, where I, along with the world's entire supply of toilet paper, in case you are wondering where it had all gone, am currently hiding in self-isolation. While the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, or COVID-19, as it's now affectionately known, continues to make its merry way across. The globe. Given the scale of the emergency currently unfolding around the world and with considerable sense of anxiety surrounding it, I figured it might be worth our while this month to explore the topic of folk medicine and to consider the traditional approaches to healing employed by our forebears in warding off illnesses of all sorts. So I hope you'll stay with me for the next uh, hour, hour and a bit as we, as we explore some different uh, customs and practices in this regard. So, by way of an overview, so by way of an overview, In this episode we'll begin our exploration with the definition of folk medicine before taking a look at one of the healing deities of classical European paganism, whose iconography is still used to denote medical practice today. Then it's off into the world of baseless speculation and conjecture as I examine mythological gods of healing found in the early Irish literature before we take a cheery and light-hearted stroll through the long list of plagues and pestilences recorded in the Irish Annals from the 6th century on. My slew of unverifiable and overblown claims will then continue in the second half of the podcast with a look at more recent folk tradition regarding medical practice, uh, as we examine cures found in the manuscripts and field-recorded interviews held in the archives of the National Folklore Collection in UCD, which involved the use of blood, briars, uh, smoke, fire, herbs, stones, charms, prayers, and indeed corpses. So you should be able to find some useful bits and pieces around the house as needs be i'll provide a link to some of the main readings and manuscripts and resources of interest in the description and our soundcloud page so to begin uh, well what is folk medicine uh, the world health organization with whose grim pronouncements we've all become familiar of late defines folk medicine as the following their quote the sum total of the knowledge skill and practices based on the theories beliefs and experiences indigenous to different cultures whether explicable or not used in the maintenance of health, as well as in the preservation, diagnosis, improvement or treatment of physical and mental illness. So a suitably broad definition from the World Health Organization there. Understanding of this topic might be helped, however, by our first considering the characteristics of folk tradition in general. So bear with me here. Firstly, folk tradition tends to be anonymous. So unlike a book penned by a specific author or the painter who signs their canvas, The authors of our traditions are generally unknown, with folk customs not being attributed to any one individual. Similarly, our folk traditions are communally shared and understood as opposed to being highly individualistic expressions. Say, So in this sense, they represent, as the late professor Dahyo Hogan used to always say, the wisdom of the many expressed in the wit of the few. Furthermore, our folk traditions are informal. So you don't, for example, receive the National School Skipping Rhyme Syllabus for 2020 on a government pamphlet through your door every September, nor does the state issue yearly instructions on compulsory Halloween observances, right? Uh, that will all change, of course, when I come to power, but there you go. So if we take that folk traditions are anonymous, they're communal and they're informal, well, they are also, perhaps unsurprisingly, traditional, being passed on from generation to generation or being transmitted among a group of individuals who share some common bond, say, of uh, race, ethnicity, nationality, religion, gender, age, etc, etc. Further, folklore is often an oral as opposed to a purely literary tradition, although this is an area of contention and somewhat of a chicken versus egg type of question, so orality influences the literary and vice versa. Finally then, our folk customs are formulaic, they show stable patterns which, while reflecting the specificity of their own environments, also vary from place to place, and importantly as well, they change over time. So, while hardly an exact science, cultural expressions displaying these uh, aforementioned characteristics may broadly be understood as representing items of folk tradition. But what in the hell does all this have to do with medicine? I hear you loudly and quite rudely, to be frank, exclaim. Well, to supplement the World Health Organization's definition, and in light of the aforementioned characteristics I've just gone through, we might tentatively define folk medicine as representing those traditional formulas, methods, or techniques commonly understood and employed to ward off illness and which, not being governed or overseen by any professional body, are informally practiced, being transmitted over generations through customary example and repetition. So essentially, we're dealing with a sort of informal medicine here, the methods of which may seem quite strange to us, especially when viewed from a purely materialist or modern perspective. So it's important to bear in mind that traditional approaches to illness and infirmity, while often employing magic, sacrifice and the use of charms or rituals, all modes of thought quite alien to modern and secular perspectives, are nonetheless valid areas of research and inquiry. Far from being casually forged in the half-light of ignorance, folk cures reveal those medical practices which, being deeply concerned with human life and welfare, were called on by our forebears in times of crisis, specifically in order to provide reassurance and comfort in the face of insecurity, illness and anxiety. The great Sean O'Sullivan, first archivist to the Irish Folklore Commission, wrote in his book Nolstna agus Pithogunnail, or Irish Folk Custom and Belief, that, and here's his quote, it is not to be wondered at that our ancient ancestors had ideas about the human body and its maladies which seem very strange to us. Most ailments were attributed to the action of unfriendly powers, evil spirits, fairies, ghosts, and so on. Man's main weapon against them was magic, and his efforts gave him comfort even if they did not always bring relief. Before examining the specifics of Irish folk medicine, I want to examine some of the healing gods of European antiquity, the echoes of which are still with us today. You may have noticed while uh, staring hopelessly at the center of the logo of the world health organization the symbol of a snake which is entwined around a staff this symbol which appears as a symbol of medical practice and health in modern times is the rod of asclepius and takes its name from asclepius who is the healing deity of ancient greek and later roman mythology who was depicted as holding a rod around which a snake coils itself now it's worth noting that the image of uh, the coiled snake appears in connection with healing and resurrection in Semitic, Sumerian and even ancient Egyptian iconography. We can't really uh, afford to get into that here because the podcast would be 10 hours long, but there are plenty of rabbit holes to disappear down in that regard if one is so inclined. Anyway, Asclepius was the son of Apollo, himself god of healing, and grandson of Zeus, the father of the gods. And Apollo, we are told, killed Sclepius's mother while she was still pregnant. But, well, uh, regretting his actions, Apollo delivered the young Asclepius from her womb by C-section before giving him to the centaur Charon, who trained Asclepius in medicine. A little intense, but there you go. Now, Asclepius became so skilled a physician that he started to raise the dead, which upset Hades. So Zeus, angry at Asclepius' skill and ability to render humans immortal, killed his own grandson with a lightning bolt before relenting and resurrecting him as a god of healing and you thought your family was crazy. Asclepius, having had a bit of a rough time at the hands of his father and grandfather, it must be said, was eventually resurrected as the star Serpentorius. Now, you may not have heard of the star Serpentorius, but it resides in the constellation of Ophiuchus, which means serpent bearer. And it was believed that people born under this star were gifted with healing skill. Now, in excitedly leafing through the back of the sun or some similar rag to read your horoscope today, you won't find a fucus listed for it is the 13th and hidden sign of the zodiac referred to by some astrologers of antiquity. That said, if you were born between the 29th of november and the 18th of december you can now confound your friends by informing them that having been born under this sign you bear an affinity with uh, snakes and an immunity to all poisons a desperate and frankly embarrassing revelation which will surely stop even the most pleasant of conversations dead in its tracks now ireland has no tradition of healing snakes a la asclepius and his staff though altogether more malevolent serpents do appear in connection with the god of healing who features in the irish mythological cycle Dian Caeacht, who is credited with having saved Ireland, is the divine physician of our mythic tradition, being described in the early literature as a sage of leechcraft and a god of powers, whose name may be taken to mean he who swiftly travels. It should be noted, though, that some scholars have suggested that his name, at the word Caeacht in particular refers not to any powers or coacht as such, but to the plough, Uh, which wouldn't seem to make much sense in light of his activities as Ireland's healing sage, but there you go, these are the murky waters through which we peer when dealing with these topics. Anyway, in the mythological cycle, we are told that the Mordian or Morrigan, a goddess of war, battle and carnage, whose name means phantom queen or queen of ghosts, gave birth to a son so terrible that the gods decided that he should be killed straight away before he destroyed the world. The world being Ireland, of course. So Dien Kert promptly killed the infant, after which he cut open his body only to find three serpents coiled in the child's heart. These serpents, we are told, had they grown to full size, would have destroyed Ireland. Dean killed the serpents and burnt their bodies until all that remained was ash, which he dumped in the river Barrow in Ireland's south-east. The event is described thus. Into this river, the Barrow, were flung the three snakes that were found in the heart of the Morrigan's son, Maitia, after he was slain by Dienkecht. The three hearts that were in Maitia bore the shape of three serpents' heads, and had not the killing of him come to pass, those snakes would have grown in his belly and eventually left no animals alive in Ireland. When he had slain Maitia, Dienkecht burnt the snakes and their ashes he committed to that current. With the effect that it seethed and digested all living things that therein were. So, Dienkert, the divine physician of Irish mythology, casting out infirmity from the land, thereby killing the infant son of a war goddess, whose apocalyptic aspect and very existence was fated to bring about cosmic devastation and the collapse of all order. Okay, so the evidence suggests that the motifs at play here are of particular antiquity and are part of a much older Indo-Iranian and Indo-European tradition, but the practice of killing, burning and casting into a stream in order to get rid of disease would appear to have been a striking one as it stayed with us, and it appears in a 15th century Irish law text, a section of which regards rabbit dogs, which relates how, and here's the quote, there is no benefit in proclaiming the dog unless it be killed. Nor they would be killed unless it be burned, nor they would be burned unless the, that the ashes be cast into a stream. So, ancient Indo-European medicinal magic via killing and burning and casting into streams. So, uh, thank you. Aside from casting evil remains into streams... Tienkecht used to bathe the wounded and sickly in a magical well called Tibridslaane. Uh, this is a healing well from which all rose refreshed and revived. Now, we'll say no more here on healing wells and springs, but I suggest you check episode 23 of the podcast on holy wells to learn more of this topic. Now, Tienkecht's son Mir and his daughter Aramud, both renowned healers in their own right, used to join him at Tibridslaane, where they would encant charms over the waters there but Dienkechth and Mirch had somewhat of a falling out, with the former killing the latter in a fit of professional envy, essentially. The story goes that Dienkechth built an arm made of silver for the king Nuada, who, having lost his own arm in battle, was unfit to rule. The kings in early Ireland had to be free from all physical blemishes to rule. Now, Dienkechth's son, Mirch, thought he could do better than his father, and so went to Nuada's silver arm and recited a charm over it. The Second Battle of Moitura, a text from our mythological corpus, tells us that Mir went to the hand and said joint to joint of it and sinew to sinew, and within nine days the arm was healed and restored to its original power. This, by the way, is another very ancient charm to which we shall return later. Anyway, Dian did not at all like his son's superior cure, and he struck and cut at him. But each time he did so, Mirch would regenerate and heal himself until Dienkerth cut his son's brain so that he died. Whereupon, Dienkert said that no physician could heal him of that blow. Point made. Mirch was then buried by Dienkerth and 365 healing herbs grew up through the grave, corresponding to the number of his joints and sinews. Mir's sister Aramut came to the grave, spread her cloak upon it and uprooted the herbs according to their healing properties, but Dienkerth came to her and mixed them all up, so that no one knows their proper healing qualities to this day, so now you know. Aside from the mythological texts detailing the exploits of the old healing gods in Irish tradition, we also find cheery historical accounts of plagues, pestilence and uh, disease in our medieval chronicles. William P. MacArthur, in his Feel Good article, The Identification of Some Pestilences Recorded in the Irish Annals, from Volume 6 of Irish Historical Studies, notes how the bubonic plague first visited these shores. And he writes that the first visitation of this disease in Europe, which which can be clearly identified, was the pandemic commonly called Justinian's Plague, from the name of the Roman Emperor who then reigned the greek historian procopius wrote how justinian himself was smitten by this disease for he too had a swelling of the groin a symptom of the plague good man justinian leaving the stricken justinian and his swollen groin there for a moment the records show that this plague having spread into europe from egypt depopulated entire cities in europe with the crops standing uncut in the fields because the laborers had perished or fled the early literature records the name of the disease as blephed though in the Annals of the Four Masters it is given no particular name, being referred to merely as an extraordinary universal plague throughout the world, which is reassuring. References to historic plagues also appear in the Annals concerning the death of 9000 Parthelonians, they were mythic inhabitants of Ireland from back in the day, who, we are told, were killed by an epidemic pestilence which destroyed them all in one week. The place where they were buried together is called Taulechtamuinterpárhalen, which Irish listeners may know today as Talla in West Dublin. So, uh, apologies to any Talla listeners, but according to tradition, you live in a place which means well, plague hole. And um, following the aforementioned blafid, the mysterious buy Connell, or delightfully named Yellow Pestilence, struck Ireland later in the sixth century. And if the sixth century was somewhat unpleasant, the seventh wasn't much better, as early sources collated by Sir William Wilde, father of Oscar Wilde, the playwright and wit, uh, described calamities aside from plague, such as famines and earthquakes, all of which occurred while dragons and serpents rode about the sky, apparently. In the year 688, in Leinster, it was said to have rained blood. Butter turned to the colour of blood that year, and uh, wolves were seen and heard speaking with human voices. No mention of fights over toilet rolls are to be found in the marginalia, but we can assume there were numerous portents of doom and strange arguments over that too. Now, blood rain and talking wolves aside, it is clear from our medieval records that epidemic diseases were a persistent feature of Irish life. With outbreaks of diminishing impact throughout the medieval period, plague seemed to have disappeared from Europe by the 8th century before returning cataclysmically in the mid-14th century with a series of outbreaks that became known as the Black Death. The term Black Death isn't a reference to any symptom of the disease mind and isn't recorded before 1823, but comes from a translation of the Latin ater, meaning terrible, so the whole period might perhaps be rendered instead as the terrible death, which I think is much more comforting. Uh, A touching account written in the margins of a 14th century Irish manuscript by a young transcriber, A, son of Crúhor MacAagon shows how the plague manifested in Ireland. As on Christmas Eve of the year 1350, he wrote, 1,350 years until tonight since Jesus Christ, Amen, was born, and in the second year after the coming of plague into Ireland, that was written. I myself am full twenty-one years old, A, son of Cruhor MacEaghan, and let everyone who shall read this utter a prayer of mercy for my soul. Christmas Eve tonight, and under the safeguard of the King of Heaven and Earth, who is here tonight, I place myself, and may Heaven be the end of my life, and may He put this great plague past me and my friends, and may we be once more in joy and happiness. Our records show that young A, uh, though not taken by the plague which he so feared, did nonetheless die only eight years later. So remember him in your Christmas prayers. The Black Death, as Joseph Robbins has written in his warm and fuzzy book, Miasma, Epidemic and Panic in 19th Century Ireland, uh, as he quotes, left behind a devastated Europe where at least one in three of the population perished, bringing with it a degree of terror and panic never before or since experienced by mankind. Indeed, some estimates suggest that as much as 50% of the population of Europe was wiped out. So you see, things aren't so bad. If this whole experience begins to get to you, just say to yourself, at least it's not 1350. Now, I personally have had enough of uh, bubonic groins, widespread pestilences, terror-inducing plagues and medieval wasting diseases. But before we move on to consider folk cures to such ailments, I want to mention uh, leprosy briefly, and I'm here to equip you with a useless factoid which you can shoehorn into your next chat via FaceTime or Zoom or what have you, while talking with uh, loved ones or colleagues or family members in self-isolation, etc. The Latin form of the English word leper is liber, the basic meaning of which being uh, that which peels off, which is Uh, gross, but there you are. Anyway, the Latin form liber originally referred to the inner bark of trees and since this is what was written on in early times the word liber came in time to mean a book. So you should always remember therefore that the words library and leprosy have their origins in the same word. You can uh, thank me later. Okay, so we've covered Definitions of folk medicine. Um, we've looked at healing deities of classical European pagan tradition and the healing sages of Irish tradition and have even delved a little into the merry world of medieval pestilence. Let's turn now to look at some of the methods employed for curing illnesses of all sorts in folk tradition, a drawing on a mixture of field recordings, texts, uh, articles, and manuscripts from the archives of the National Folklore Collection. It was said in tradition that there isn't an ailment or infirmity, the cure of which doesn't grow in the fields or along the hedges, and, naturally enough, the people in former times, when faced with sickness, disease or injury, made first recourse to the herbs and plants growing the locality. These cures, involving no ritual or magical element, were entirely practical in their usage and application, as Mrs Woods describes in the following account concerning an ointment for burns her grandmother used to prepare, and which was very popular with local people in the area.
1: Then my other grandmother had the cure of the Barton, although she was always careful to point out that it was not a cure as such. She didn't say any prayers while she was doing it. She? she didn't make any incantations or anything like that. It was made from unsalted butter. Say, a cupful of freshly churned unsalted butter. About two cups of daisies you know, that grow in the fields, roots, leaves, and all. But you had to discard the flowers, or better still, pick them without any flower on. And then you washed those and dried them a cupful of ivy leaves and a cupful of the bark of the boar tree. You scraped that off with a knife. And a little bit of house leak, if you had it, and if you hadn't it didn't matter. And, and all that was put into a saucepan and left by the side of the fire for a couple of hours until the the butter had turned green. And she would then pour it off and carefully squeeze every drop out of the green greenery that was in it. And that was put into a jar and given to the person who came they usually would come for the for the ointment and as well as the ointment she always gave a square of linen homespun her own linen she would cut a piece say the size of or a little bit bigger than the area that was burned and she would tell the person now put the ointment on that put plenty of it on and leave that down on the burnt area bandage it lightly and do not store it, do not take off that linen for nine days. But if you do think that it's getting very dry or that would want more ointment, put, get another piece of plain cloth (coughs) and put as much more ointment on it and just put that down over the linen and bandage it again and rest, if it's a foot, rest it, rest the limb. And sure enough, if it wasn't really and truly healed in the nine days, it was almost.
0: The house leak mentioned by Mrs Woods in the preceding list of ingredients is a plant with an interesting degree of custom pertaining to it. And all over Europe, it was believed that this plant protected the house from lightning strikes. And for more on that, you can revisit episode four, where we discuss the look of the house in folk tradition. Uh, But in the meantime, here's another account from our sound archive, which describes the practical use of house leak, In this instance, the cure is for uh, failing sight or sore eyes. You
2: took a leaf. Of the house leak, and you put it over your eye going to bed, or you, some people jagged the eye, brown eye with it. But house leak was a great cure for sore eyes, or feeling sight, in fact, they used it for it.
0: Other practical remedies included the use of cobwebs to stem blood, as is described in the following instance. Well, a cobweb
2: for a, for a, a wound, I saw a was a platelet wound, too. Yeah. Um, just get a big lump of cobweb from there and the dirtiest piece you could get sometimes <laughs> you just stick it on the cut. And if you cut yourself shaving, there was plenty of cobwebs that time. Get a cobweb and put the cobweb in it. That's what they would do to, to stop the blood.
0: Cobweb indeed has a very respectable medical lineage, it should be said, being noted in 4th century Latin medical manuscripts and in the Irish translation of the Rosa Anglica, which is a textbook of medieval medicine. If you don't have a cobweb to hand, a somewhat more earthy cure for bleeding can be found in the fungus known as tradition as the bull's fart. It's a more familiar and slightly less hilarious name you may recognize as the humble puffball. And the spores from this fungus poured into a wound served as an emergency dressing, which would immediately stem bleeding. Uh, an actual bull's fart would probably have little uh, impact on bleeding, it would probably only incapacitate the patient. But however. Practical cures like this were not at all uncommon in former times and, indeed, long before Sir Alexander Fleming's discovery of penicillin in 1928, the people used to often keep a loaf of white bread or a piece of bacon in a damp part of the house, applying the mould growing on it to sores which were slow to heal. Aside from mouldy bread and herbs, heat was often used to drive out illness. Examples from tradition can be found in the sweat house, which was found in Ireland and particularly in Ulster. Seaton F. Milligan, writing in the Journal of the Royal Historical and Archaeological Association of Ireland in 1890, describes how he stumbled upon one such ancient Irish hot air bath while exploring the area along the Cavan and Leitrim border. The farmer, next to whose land the Sweathouse was situated, related how a cure was effected. Saying, a large quantity of turf or peat was piled inside and the fire kindled and allowed to burn down. The interior becomes heated like a baker's oven. The ashes are afterwards swept out and the floor left clean. As soon as it becomes sufficiently cool it may be entered, to effect which a person must creep on all floors, as the door opening is small and only permits a person to enter in this way. A screen is then placed across the door. The usual time to remain inside is one hour, during which it needs scarcely be said the occupants perspire most profusely, no doubt. The folklorist Kevin Danaher, describing a sweat house in the same county in 1952, wrote that when a person was to be sweated for pleurisy or some other ailment, a fire was lit in the sweat house until the walls and floor were hot enough. The fire was then raked and a layer of green rushes spread on the floor to prevent the feet being burned by the hot flags. The patient stripped, crept in through the door and remained inside until he had been sufficiently sweated. He then crept out and washed himself all over in a pool in the stream below. So, apart from its use in curing pientifur or rheumatism, recourse was also made to the sweat house for cosmetic purposes. Writing in the Journal of the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland in 1891, D.B. Mulcahy relates how the sweat house was used by the young women of Rathlin Island off the Antrim coast. He describes how, and here's his quote. Mrs. Dara, a native of Rathlin, an old lady who left the island 60 years ago, said that the young women wishing to improve their complexion after making peat or pulling flax, used to have the bath as it removed the kales or stains and made them look nice and white. Previous to the Great Lammas Fair of Ballycastle, the bath was greatly used by the young women for this purpose, as they were anxious to look their best at the fair. Now, a great many remedies found within the framework of folk medicine are based upon man's interaction with the natural world and involve the practical application of herbs, plants, minerals, and animal substances found in nature to cure infirmity. So, think poultices, cobwebs, bull's farts, and sweathouses, etc. But in the treatment of ailments, magic and the use of holy words or charms also featured prominently. The idea of curing by means of a charm, however, is one of particular antiquity, and if you remember in our earlier discussion regarding Mirch, the son of the Irish god of healing, Díon we mentioned how a charm was employed by him to cure the injured king Nuada by the recitation joint to joint of it and sinew to sinew over the king's severed arm. Now, this charm is found not only in the Irish mythological corpus but has a broader international provenance and a version of it can be found in the library of the Merseburg Cathedral in Germany. The so-called Merseburg incantations consist of two medieval pagan spells written in Old High German which, interestingly enough, are found in a 9th century liturgical manuscript at Merseburg Cathedral. One of these spells relates Odin's cure for a horse whose foot has become dislocated while riding through the forest. Odin, like Mirch, effects a cure by reciting the charm. The charm is If a bone-wrenching, if a blood-wrenching, if a limb-wrenching, bone to bone, blood to blood, limb to limb, as if bonded. This charm, however, would appear to be a much older example of Indo-European healing magic, as aside from the above examples in Ireland and in Germany, a still earlier version can be found in the Atharva Veda, a collection of over 700 Sanskrit hymns, charms and mantras which form part of the Hindu scriptural texts. A charm drawing on the power of the plant laksha is described in this text as being able to cure fractures. It proceeds as follows. Thy marrow shall unite with marrow, and thy joint with joint. Thy skin grow together with skin. Thy blood, thy bone shall grow. Thy flesh grow together with flesh fit together hair with hair and fit together skin with skin thy blood thy bone shall grow what is cut join thou together o plant do thou here rise up go forth run forth as a chariot with sound wheels firm fellow and strong knave stand upright firmly the considerable antiquity and widespread provenance of this charm is quite incredible, to say the least, and with its unfailing efficacy attested by Mir, uh, by Odin and the Hindus, even Christ can be seen to have gotten in on the action. Recent versions of this charm are to be found in Irish oral tradition, being attributed to Christ and employed by him to cure a sprain, as in the following manuscript account, collected by a schoolchild in Trumdiffer, County Leitrim, as part of the 1937 school's folklore scheme, in which it is written. Jesus was riding over moory hills and heathery mountain. His forefoot slipped. He put bone to bone, blood to blood, and flesh to flesh. Put all together in the name of Jesus, and say three Hail Marys in honour of God and the Saint that cures the sprain. This is done on Mondays and Thursdays before sunset. Now, I must say, I quite enjoyed the idea of Jesus riding over moors and heathery hills, and can just see him stopping for a bowl of soup in Cavan as he traipses around the midlands of Ireland. Um, Other versions of this charm recount how Jesus cures the sprained hoof of a donkey or a horse, but all revolve around the same essential motif, Uh, this idea of bone to bone, blood to blood, etc. And it's an example of early Indo-European healing magic found in Hindu, Norse, Irish and Christian traditions. It's quite incredible, really, if you stop to think for a minute about the countless generations, the disparate lands and nations, the varying languages and diverse religions across which this charm has persisted and through which it comes to us today. So while charms were commonly known among the people, others were carefully guarded and recited in secret, being used only by the charmer to effect a cure for the patient. Particular men and women in the local community were understood to have knowledge of these secret formulas and they were in great demand, being visited by the sick and infirm. Their secrets are never shared, as Michael Morris from the Sparrow Mountains now relates.
2: It's passed on secretly. I don't know how, but it's passed on secretly. The no, There's certain formulas used that they keep secret to themselves, and then they give these formulas and words to whoever they choose to leave it with. And of course they never reveal it to any other body. Or if they did, well, they would lose it. They'd lose the charm. They would lose the charm. Was there any other way they could lose the charm that would be used on human beings? If they'd give it to an animal. a head of a man that had a cure for a, uh, well, oh, I forget what it was, but anyhow he gave give it to a pig and he lost the cure himself. Mm.
0: Another account collected in County Antrim describes how labouring men injured in the course of their work used to visit a local wise woman who had the cure for a sprain, which she enacted by means of a secret charm recited over the patient.
3: Well, there's there's a, a woman, I don't want to name her, but she lives in a town in the middle of County Antrim at the present time. And she lives not far from where there's a, a lot of men that are engaged in work where they're up to get a lot of sprains and wrenched muscles and that sort of thing. And all they've got to do is to go over to her and she says some words they, they never can hear what she's saying. She almost them to herself and she just looks at them and when she does that, the sprain goes away. Did you ever hear now, the words she uses? I never heard it but there was a wee daughter of mine and she had got a bad sprained foot and she went. And when she went in, she told me that you nearly thought that she was praying. And she said she could feel the sprain getting easier. And the next morning it was away.
0: Now, great mystery tended to surround these verbal cures, and they were often believed to be transmitted solely from the male to the female, and from the female to the male, as the following account, collected in County Tyrone, describes
3: From the male to the female. Mm-hmm. From the female, a uh, man can pass it on to a woman, and a woman can pass it on to a man. Mm. But it seems that a male can't pass it on to a male, nor mm. a female can't pass it on to a female.
0: This next piece, collected in Galway from Mrs. Woods, references the same idea regarding transmission of cures and charms and describes how the cure of sprain came down from her grandmother to her father her grandmother having received it from a man who travelled a long distance to apply the cure to an injured animal on their farm.
1: Now my father had the cure of the sprain and it was a cure that was handed down in the family from, say from male to female and from female to male. It was a protestant man that first gave it to his mother, my grandmother, when she was a little girl. He was brought to the farm to make the cure of the sprain for a cow that had hurt her foot and he made it and he said he had to come a long journey and he said well he said I give it now he said to the little girl and she can cure so he did and it has something to do with the placing the proper placing of your hands on the joint that's injured I'm saying some prayers any prayers I think my father would say no Our father and I had made it, but possibly there is maybe a special prayer to be said
0: in addition to the recitation of charms or incantations to heal sprains or other ailments, small pieces of cord or string imbued with magical properties were at times worn to cure sickness. The following account describes how sprains could be cured by means of a flaxen cord called a straining thread, which was wound around the injured area after a charm had been recited over the cord and imbuing it with healing properties.
2: They make a cord from flax and while they're making this cord, they use some prayers. I, I don't know what the prayers are. Of course, they'd so say them secretly, and uh, then tie it around the affected part, and it would uh, take it as long to get better as what you had it before you got the the strain and thread put on. Mm-hmm. If it was three days, it would be three days before it would be better. If it was five days, it would be five days before it was be better, and so forth.
0: Now, while charms were often recited over a patient, alternate practices drew on the protective power of the written word, as in this next example concerning the Lauer-Owen. And I'd like to thank Professor Patricia Lysett for sending me the following account concerning the Lauer-Owen, which I remember her describing to me in her classes many years ago. The following account from our manuscript archive describes the protective power of the Lower owen and was collected in West Kerry. Patricia's translation from Irish goes as follows. When a young man or woman or a child got sick someone would go to the priest for the lauer own. What this meant was that the priest would write out in Latin on a piece of paper verses 1 to 14 chapter 1 of the Gospel according to John. Any piece of paper would do. The piece of paper was put into a little cloth purse and was hung around a sick person's neck. The lower own was said to be very powerful and to have cured many a person. If a person got sick or if he got a fright at night, he was in no danger if he was wearing the Lauer-Own, and it was said that he should not give it until somebody asked him for it. It is said the priest who could cure a person with the Lauer-Own, that something would happen to him soon after, that he would go insane or that he would die or that he would have an accident of some kind. Great care had to be exercised by the priest when writing out this gospel because popular belief held that if the priest made a mistake when writing the lower own, the person for whom it was being written was in grave danger of death or that some misfortune would befall him. Priests naturally were credited in tradition with having a certain degree of magical or supernatural influence, but others were believed to receive healing power from the condition or time of their birth or by virtue of the family into which they were born. The seventh son of a seventh son, or seventh daughter of a seventh daughter, for example, was believed to be able to cure a great many illnesses.
3: Well, the belief has always been held in the glens of Antrim, and I suppose in a wider district as well, that the seventh son of a seventh son had powers that weren't given to ordinary people. Now, for instance, they were supposed to have a cure for smallpox, and that's one thing that they were supposed to never take themselves. And uh, it's been tried on different occasions in the old days, I believe, when smallpox was rife, before vaccination came in. And in those days, they did claim to have had cures. Of course, a seventh son of a seventh son has a lot of other powers. But uh, in the most cases, the seventh son of a seventh son is so scarce that they're very hard to find.
0: While the condition of one's birth was believed to play a part in the ability to heal, certain families or surnames were likewise credited in popular tradition as having healing properties. The blood of anyone with the surname Kyo, for example, was understood to be able to cure wildfire or erysipelas, a bacterial infection which has the uh, pleasant effect of causing fevers, fatigue, uh, headaches, vomiting and large blistering rashes which cover the body. Lovely. This next account from Patrick O'Connor, published in Bailidus, the Journal of the Folklore of Ireland Society, in 1943, recounts the relatively recent, and somewhat unusual by modern standards at least, treatment for the infection, with a seventh son of the Keogh family being brought in to apply their blood to a young Patrick O'Connor. He writes... When I was about seven or seven and a half years old, I became ill with an ailment which I heard my people and others at the time refer to as Saint Anthony's fire or wildfire. The chief symptom of the ailment was a patch of blisters, like water blisters, and varying in size from a small pea to a pebble. The patch, about two inches deep, increased each day under my left arm and then across my back in line with the base of the shoulder blades. The doctor who examined me prescribed, but his treatment did not retard the progress of my belt of blisters. My parents, I remember, became very alarmed as each morning they perceived another inch or so added to my belt. I heard people telling my parents that if the belt met on me, I would die and so on day by day. At length, only two and a half inches separated the two ends of the belt, causing increased anxiety to my parents. During this latter period, I could hear a good deal of whispering about Seventh Son, but I could not understand how Seventh Son had or could have anything to do with my ailment. However, I understood something about Seventh Son that evening. About seven in the evening, my Uncle Pat called to our house. He had another man with him, a short, thick-set man with slight necklace beard. I heard him spoken to as Mr. Kill. After some time, I was brought into the parlour. When Mr. Kyo examined me, I distinctly remember him looking very serious. Indeed, he looked worried. He sat down and called for strong thread and a needle. He was provided with thread and a good-sized darning needle. I was observing everything, and nothing said or done then have I forgotten. Mr. Kyo next tied some of the thread very tightly round one of the fingers of his left hand. Then, when the top of the finger became swollen, he stabbed the place at least two or three times the blood spurted out i was put in front of him and he got on his knees this is what then happened first of all he put a small cross with his own blood just at the place where my belt of blisters began he seemed to be repeating some kind of prayer but the only words i could distinguish and have ever since remembered were blessed virgin mary during this time mr kyo dabbed some of his blood on the blisters under my arm and so on across my back I had to turn round under my right arm, and to the end of the belt. At that place, Mr Kyo put another cross, and once again I heard him say very distinctly, Blessed Virgin Mary. That finished, Mr Kyo got up and sat down. I became weak and faint, and then became sick. I was put to bed. Next morning, my parents were overjoyed. The blisters were withered, and in a few days, all traces had gone. Now, while those with particular surnames could cure through the application of their blood, like the instance that we just heard, similar powers were at times imbued in those who married a spouse sharing their own surname. A man and a woman who shared the same surname would develop the ability to cure whooping cough, as this next account describes.
2: Yes, it's about the name you see. My name was, I married a man the same name as myself, and uh, if I cut so many pieces of bread, supposed to be a cure.
0: Have there any name on this bread?
2: Charity bread, that's what it's
0: called. Other examples of this sort are not rare. For example, recourse at times was made on behalf of a young child suffering with whooping cough to a husband and wife of the same surname, who would have to give the first and last piece of their breakfast to the messengers sent to them. I would have a particularly hard time handing over fried eggs and black pudding to such a messenger, I must say. In other instances, whooping cough could be cured by meeting with a man riding on a white horse, who would be asked, or, man of the white horse, what is the cure of this disease? The cure was brought about by doing whatever this fellow said. Dr. Pat Logan, in his marvellous book Making the Cure on Folk Cures in Ireland, remarks that Mr. and Mrs. Hall, in their 19th century tour guide of Ireland, remark how the doctors in Leitrim always rode a white horse. This cure may reflect a survival from medieval times, but as Dr. Logan notes, there are no contemporary references to back this up. So the jury's out there are, of course, more cures involving magic, ritual elements, or emotional reasoning in their application than we can possibly hope to mention here, but a very commonly held belief was that an illness could be cured by the patients crawling through a small gap between a double rooted briar, for example, or a hole in a stone or a split in a tree. This is an old example of magic shared in English tradition, the idea being that the illness could be transferred to something else and left behind, as it were. Sean O'Sullivan noted how at St Declan's Well in Ardmore, County Waterford, he saw pilgrims crawl laboriously through an opening under a stone on the strand to rid themselves of rheumatism. The whooping cough, which can cause serious trouble for infants and was in all likelihood a very grave disease in Ireland long ago, was no different. And it was believed that in addition to the charity bread and white horses and stolen breakfasts uh, just described, this ailment could be cured by passing a child under and over a donkey three times. I heard charm for, a, for the cough, one time.
2: It was a very old one. I heard the, the old people talking about it. A child that would have the put it under a donkey's belly and over its back a number of times, and then it would be cured.
0: Now, the magical transference of an ailment into some animal, person, or object is a truly ancient idea, being widespread throughout Europe and applied to all manner of diseases and infirmities. Lady Wilde, writing in 1887, describes how warts could be cured in such a manner, saying, on meeting a funeral, take some of the clay from under the feet of the men who bear the coffin and apply it to the wart, wishing strongly at the same time that it may disappear, and so it would be. If there were no funerals handy, one always had a recourse to this next cure. Tie up some pebbles in a bag with a piece of silver money. Whoever finds the bag and keeps the money, to him the warts will go and leave you forever. Ha <laughs> ha! Listeners in Ireland might recall hearing that warts could be cured by rubbing a snail to them before pricking the snail on a thorn. The idea being that as the snail decayed, so too would the warts with it. I remember that myself from my youth. Magical transference of this sort could cure, but it was also used as a means to attack one's neighbours. For example, if you buried eggs on your arch nemesis' land, it was believed that all of his good fortune would disappear as the eggs rotted. Similarly, a uh, slightly more intense version of this idea can be found in the example of cutting a calf into quarters and burying the, each of the quarters in the four corners of your neighbor's land. As the meat would rot, so too would all of your neighbour's good fortune. So, if you find the hind leg of a calf or a clutch of eggs buried in your garden, that neighbour of yours who's always peering at you out through their blinds probably has a problem uh, with you. However, to the topic of warts.
2: Well, so I heard of several cures for warts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dust of the pipe, rubbed on nine times. The dust, of, you know, the doodle for the top of the pipe is we call it, doodle, mm-hmm. rubbed on the wart nine times. Another was uh, take it to some old uh, grinding stone or millstone. You know, you have several of them here and there through the country. And if there was any stagnant water in that, uh, uh, wash the wart, and they're supposed to take the water away. Another again was to uh, jag them with the uh, a thorn from a, a, a blackthorn bush and uh, that was supposed to be a cure for them too.
0: Now, in thinking about these cures, it's important, I think, not to try to veer towards rationalist or materialist explanations for them but to consider them in accordance with their own internal logic. Though strictly irrational, these beliefs have human welfare and the promotion of well-being at their core and are based on a system of reasoning which employs ideas around likeness, opposites, essence, boundaries and symbolism, all of which are called upon in times of crisis. Similar examples of this can be found in the voodoo doll, the effigy which being uh, attacked or maligned in in some way will uh, cause a similar effect in the victim to whom it has been named. Or, in the case of the Leitrim farmer I remember chatting with who informed me that he always slaughtered his pigs on a new moon, as he would have the maximum return on his produce in slaughtering them while the moon was waxing and growing in size. If he were to slaughter the animals under a waning moon, he said, the opposite would occur. This sort of thinking suggests that we take cues from nature and take advantage of natural cycles in order to prosper, and more closely align ourselves with the invisible forces which seem to steer the course of life. Anyway, on the topic of slaughtered pigs and returning to cures for warts.
2: When the pig was stuck or been butchered, he held a vessel and kept some of the blood, rubbed on the wart, it was supposed to disappear.
0: Now, animals seem to have had a bit of a hard time of it as far as certain traditional medical practices go. A somewhat gruesome treatment for bronchitis was described in certain parts of Ireland. An account from our 1937 school's collection manuscript describes how in Ockram in County Wicklow a hen was killed and her entrails removed so that a patient suffering from bronchitis could insert their bare feet into the cavity. If the hen decayed in half an hour, we are told, the prognosis was grim. If, however, the hen did not rot immediately, the patient would enjoy a full recovery. Lovely. Lovely. A text from 1739 titled Zoologia Medicanalis Hibernia, which lists a variety of animals and their uses in Irish folk medicine, further attests to this custom, stating that pigeons being split up alive and applied to the soles of the feet draw the fever from the head. This, we are to assume, is when strepsils simply won't do, so accept no substitute. In addition to the blood of slaughtered animals or disemboweled pigeons, human corpses could also be used to cure all manner of ailments. This uh, 1937 school's manuscript account from County Galway details the handy manner in which toothaches could be cured. If a person suffers from toothache, if he is first to the side of a person who dies without a priest and takes the hand of the corpse and rubs the fingers on the aching tooth, he will get relief forever. Probably won't go down too well if you're visiting a wake and certainly in flagrant contravention of social distancing measures but worth keeping in your back pocket as a last resort if your tooth is at you while the dentist is closed. Cures referenced the dead in more ways than one and our forebears were slow to drop their tried and tested customs when they left their native land and went to foreign and far-flung places. An account from the New York Times in 1858 relates how a police officer in Boston was applied to the other day by a superstitious Irish female for a touch of a halter wherewith a man had been hung for the cure of King's evil. The officer got a bogus rope and the woman was satisfied. King's evil, or scrofula, is the condition affecting the lymph nodes of the neck, the hangman's noose therefore being used in tradition to cure the ailment with the hope perhaps of transferring the illness away from the stricken patient. Those listeners finding themselves without immediate access to a corpse or related paraphernalia should know of the healing properties that reside in fire. The following two accounts both describe the use of smoke to drive out ringworm, with lighted embers being passed over the patient by a wise woman. I myself was a patient. I suffered from ringworm.
2: And I am quite satisfied she definitely cured me. How did she set about it? She had uh, some lighted embers and she made a halo around your head. Mm -hmm. Like burning sticks? uh Burning sticks. She had been practising her art for very many years and as a girl's a cure for ringworm, I have never known her to fail. With two sticks, lights them in the fire and runs them round just where the wound is, the smoke of it, does it several times. Some people have only one time to go to them and others has to go three. And it's always a success.
0: Smoke and fire indeed could cure both man and beast. And an 1893 article from the Journal of the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland describes the use of a need fire employed by farmers in the locality when their cattle were suffering from the esoterically titled ailment referred to in the text as a Big Head, which the author assumes to have referred to some sort of generalized swelling of the animals head the description goes as follows when the disease appeared on any farm the practice was to extinguish every fire without exception in the entire townland the men then assembled at the farm that was affected to kindle what was called a need fire which was done as follows having got two pieces of dry wood two men commenced to rub them very violently together until the friction produced a fire I have heard my father say that he himself has helped kindle a need fire, and it was very hard work, each two men rubbing in turn. When the sticks had ignited, they collected dry scraws covered with soot from the dwelling houses to produce a great smoke. The affected cattle then got a piece of wood placed in their mouths to keep them open, and the head was held over the smoke till a great deal of water ran from the mouth and nostrils, and the old people say the cure was effected and the disease stamped out. Then, every extinguished fire got a burning coal from the need fire to rekindle it. So, with disease and infirmity finally being expunged from the community, the fire would again glow in the hearth, bringing warmth, comfort and a space to tell stories in the townland again. And I hope now, dear listener, in our discussion over this last hour or so, that I've brought a little of same in our explorations. It's important in times of crisis to bear in mind the strength, endurance, and patience with which our forebears have faced all manner of trials historically, and likewise to call on the dignity and resolve with which they held themselves in hard times. So take care of yourselves, look out for your loved ones and those in need around you, and uh, if that all fails, sit back. Slip on a pair of disemboweled pigeons, touch a corpse, crawl under a rock, think of Asclepius, remember mir, recite the Merseburg incantations, steal your neighbour's strength and good fortune by burying eggs in their land, uh, be glad that you weren't racked by the Black Death in 1350, and know that having followed all the prescriptions outlined in this episode, you're pretty much invincible. Until next time, whenever that is, take care. Slán.